and welcome to the weekly review. It is Friday. It's always Friday when I do this show, so that should not come as a surprise. Today's date, it's September already. How did that happen? It's September 4th, 2015. So we're nine months into the year. And yeah, it's good to be back. It was off last week. I had a medical procedure done. Thankfully it went well, and I am recovering, and I'm happy to be back here at the station to bring you the news, which is depressing, and so we play music. And that Radiohead song, Paranoid Android, it's it's in my head most of the time, and I feel like I identify that way, certainly. Maybe that's my spirit animal, is a paranoid android. Uh, we don't know. But that's, that's been in my head, so I thought I'd open up the show with that. There's a lot of things to get to. Uh, sometimes I start off the show with a rant. Uh, I'll probably end up just ranting during the show as we get to a lot of the articles, because there's, there's always a lot going on, and... Uh, Oh, goodness gracious. So starting off, we're going to have a a guest on the show later today, which is great. And his name is Dr. Isaac Jackson, and he is the founder of the San Francisco um, Drug Users Union. And so it's going to, of course, talk about how I think just in terms of like criminalization, how that doesn't seem to help anyone. And that seems to be a recurring theme on the show with uh, law enforcement making things worse for people and this idea that it's supposed to... Uh, help people, and instead it makes things, to punish people, uh, it doesn't really help anybody. Uh, that's my my whole uh, take on it. So, there's, of course, there's a crisis going on. There's always, there's many, there's crises, there's have been since before any of us got here. It's been continuing on. So, I'm just going to start off the show with uh, what's, oh, goodness gracious. So, in Syria, you know, I would say not even just in Syria, like in the world. So what's, what's happened with the Syrian refugees and uh, what's not happening? So I'm going to start off by reading a post that um, uh, Sarah Schulman, who called into the show uh, two weeks ago, uh, she posted, and I will find the person who wrote this uh, first so I can give them uh, their their due credit because I feel like they they summarized it very well. And it's, of course, a difficult thing to summarize. And uh, her name is uh, Sharon Ullman. So I'm going to read what what Sharon wrote about the situation. And uh, she says, There are 4 million refugees from Syria right now, and the U.S. has taken in about 1,000. We act like this is all a sad thing, but nothing to do with us. Yet the slow devolution into this humanitarian disaster was kicked off in earnest by our invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. George Bush called for each country to overthrow its dictators. Obama specifically urged regime change in Syria, and over a million Iraqi refugees from the war recreated in Iraq fled to Syria. Now Syria is a bloodbath, and millions more are fleeing. Our foreign policy is deeply complicit in the creation of this disastrous chaos. I'm ashamed that America pretends this nightmare is someone else's problem to solve. So I really wanted to share that because I, I do believe that's true. And it's not like these these problems happen out of thin air. And it's been interesting growing up in a country that where I, I, I've disagreed. And I think a lot of folks disagree with a lot of the actions that the government has taken in terms of the role it's played in, in the rest of the world and how many people it's hurt and also just not looking into long-term effects of military planning uh, or just this idea that how these actions end up 
hurting people in the, and killing people in the, in the long run. And, uh, it's, it's pretty disgusting. So, uh, so then of course, you know, one talks about it and that's doesn't, in a way doesn't feel like much. Um, at least it's acknowledging that it's happening. Um, there is a post that, um, I, um, sharing, uh, that someone found, uh, that, uh, so here's how you can help during the refugee crisis in Europe. And, uh, at least it's a start. That's, that's how I feel about it. Cause of course it's, uh, one wants to help. I mean, I think the thing is like, there's a lot of people who don't even, aren't even aware that it's going on or people who want to pretend it's not going on certainly. And at least this, uh, what I'm going to read, uh, will provide, um, some ways for folks to become a little bit more proactive if they're not already proactive. And I think that's great. And at least it's to, uh, become aware of what's going on and start talking about it uh, because that's at least a step in the right direction and then pretending it's not happening. So uh, this comes from Mashable and posted it on the Facebook page. Uh, Here's how you can help during the refugee crisis in Europe. So it goes point by point and the author of this is, uh, his name is uh, Matt Pen, Pet Ronzio, Matt Pet Ronzio. All right. When looking at the sheer number of refugees around the world, it's easy to become disillusioned. According to a June report, nearly 60 million people were forcibly displaced from their homes at the end of 2014, 19.5 million of whom were refugees, up from 16.7 million in the previous year. Half of those refugees were children. And there isn't an end to the crisis in sight, due in large part to conflicts in the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa. There are currently more than 4 million Syrian refugees displaced throughout various countries, not including more than 7.6 million people internally displaced within the country. In July, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, Antonio Guterres, called them the biggest refugee population from a single uh, conflict uh, in a generation. While the number of global refugees and internally displaced people is at its highest point since World War II. When those hard facts and figures fall to garner the general public's attention, human stories and striking images, like the tragic photo of a Syrian refugee boy's lifeless body that washed ashore in a Turkey resort town Wednesday morning, tend to build empathy and anger across the globe, shedding light on a terribly common occurrence. But as the refugee crisis worsens and the media coverage surrounding it increases, many are left wondering, what can I do? From learning the real issues to supporting both large organizations and grassroots efforts alike, here are six concrete ways you can help during the refugee crisis. One, educate yourself about the global crisis. Understanding that the refugee situation is complex and due to many factors and moving parts over many years is important toward acknowledging the internal communities, the international community's role in aiding refugees today. It's crucial to know the definition of the term refugee and why we need to distinguish it from the term migrant. According to international law, a refugee is specifically someone who is fleeing armed conflict or persecution and has sought refuge across international borders. The UNHCR puts it plainly, these are people for whom denial of asylum has potentially deadly consequences. A migrant is someone who chooses to seek better living conditions in another country. While there, too, is certainly a migrant crisis, the distinction is important because countries deal with migrants based on individual immigration policies and processes, while international law dictates that countries have a responsibility to protect refugees. 
Conflating the terms can have dangerous consequences for refugees and often gives way to political debate and xenophobia in place of relief during a humanitarian crisis. Uh, beyond politics, there are many physical challenges to fleeing a country as a refugee. For example, more than 300,000 refugees and migrants have traveled across the Mediterranean Sea this year, an incredibly dangerous sea route. Some 200,000 ended up in Greece, while about 110,000 landed in Italy. So far, approximately 2,500 people have died or gone missing. Lastly, while the media's focus is often on Europe, it's important to note that the majority of Syrian refugees are displaced in neighboring Middle Eastern countries, such as Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan, where massive populations are living in camps near the borders. The daily influx puts uh, incredible strains on these host countries and their resources, especially when a relatively small country like Lebanon, which currently has about 1.2 million Syrian refugees, uh, while the country itself has only a population of about 4.5 million. Two, donate, to, and I'm gonna, I'll, I'll comment on that. I think, yeah, that's great, just to have a, an understanding of, what, of what's going on. That's, that's all I'm going to add. Okay, uh, so I think that's, that's super important um, because then even in conversations, uh, you can you know, meet someone and then get the conversation going and then folks can you know, go from there. So that's great to start with that. Okay, number two, donate to impactful organizations. There are a number of organizations and agencies on the ground and in the sea working with refugees firsthand, many of which rely almost entirely on donations for their operations. And here are just a few examples. The United Nations High Commissioner on Refugees, and that's UNHCR. The UNHCR, or the UN Refugees Agency, is, a, is the world leader in humanitarian response to the growing refugee crisis. It primarily deals with protection, emergency response, humanitarian assistance, including shelter, water, and education. Durable solutions, voluntary repatriation, oh, repatriation, uh, local integration and resettlement, and minimizing environmental impact. Um, next is uh, Medicine Sans Frontières, MSF International, or Doctor, oh, Doctors Without Borders. MSF works with refugees and internally displaced people around the world, setting up hospitals and refugee camps, providing medical, psychological, and nutritional care, and ensuring access to safe drinking water, among other services. And they have a link. I'm actually going to click on these links so I can tell you where to go. How about that, radio listeners? Um, so the first one was, it's a UN... Uh, unhcr.org and if you go to their website uh, slash pages uh, it's okay slash pages slash 49c I have okay I'm going to recommend just going to the unhcr.org page and then going to donate um, home get involved and then donate that's how you do it great Okay, now I'm going to go back and get to that second one we just mentioned, which is uh, Doctors Without Borders. And to donate to them, you go to donate.doctorswithoutborders.org. Um, also, just, yeah, going to Doctors Without Borders. And, yeah, you can find the page there where you can donate. So those are two, the first two organizations that were mentioned. And then next... Uh, International Organization for Migration, IOM. The IOM is an intergovernmental organization that works to promote humans and orderly migration as well as international cooperation. It offers services and advice to governments while also providing humanitarian assistance to refugees, the internally displaced, and migrants in need. And so you can go to, I, again, that's uh, IOM. Um, Google that International Organization for Migration. Next is an organization I'm familiar with, and back in okay, so here's a little backstory. Um, 
I worked at an ad agency for a few years back when I was in New York in my 20s, and it was mostly it was corporate branding, which I anyway uh we did however have an executive director for a little bit who came in and definitely was more like hey let's also do some pro bono work how about that since we have all these resources and this organization that we had as a client which is wonderful is the international rescue committee and they're the next ones i'm going to read about so i feel very fortunate uh and uh, uh proud to have worked at an organization that uh created their, their logo and worked with them, so that's great. So they're called, uh, yes, IRC, International Rescue Committee. IRC works in more than 40 countries to provide healthcare, infrastructure, education, economic support, emergency relief, and resettlement services for refugees with special programs for women and children. Again, that's the International Rescue Committee. Next, Save the Children. Save the Children has focused services on child refugees in Syria and neighboring countries, including setting up child-friendly spaces, supporting schools, providing access to health care and food, and more. And they also have a link so to the uh, Children's Emergency Fund. Again, that's called Save the Children. Next, Greek organizations. Uh, that's what they say. All right. Uh, an average of 1,000 refugees are entering Greece every day. Wow. 1,000 refugees every day entering Greece. Uh, look at our resource of charities uh, helping during the, the Greece crisis, uh, many of which also have specific services for refugees. Let's click on that now and find out uh, the resource of charities, uh, what they are. Um, here's the best way. Okay, so here's another. Here's the best way. Okay, so it's another article um, with different organizations in to help folks in Greece. And going down here, again, they have reported that 1,000 thousand refugees a day entering Greece. So one's called Desmos, D-E-S-M-O-S. -S. Uh, going further, oh, Desmos, which means bond or link in Greek, is a nonprofit that acts as an intermediary between the private sector and NGOs. It collects surplus goods, packaged food, hygiene products, medicine, and more. <coughs> Excuse me. From companies and individuals and uses the infrastructure, uh, storage units, and <coughs> distribution vans to deliver them to the charities and organizations that need them. I'm not used to talking this much. Uh, next is Praxis, and that's P-R-A-K-S-I-S. <coughs> mm. um, next is Medicine du Monde, so I guess it's Medicine of the World, um, Medicine for the World, and uh, yeah, uh, Doctors of the World. And next is Borome, B-O-R-O-U-M-E. So I'm going to go back because there's, uh, there's so much to cover here. But so yes, there's specific, there's a lot of organizations out there. So there's ones that are specific, specifically set in Greece. So, okay, so I'm going to go back down. And that's helpful to know the different organizations that are organized and doing the work. So I think a lot of it's like a lot of people want to help, but they don't know how to help or where to help. So folks do have some capital that they're able to contribute. There are a lot of organizations. So if you're able to, why not give to all of them? Uh, that's great. And also just you know share this information, of course. So next, um, support smaller grassroots efforts. I tend to be more, uh, I appreciate more grassroots efforts. And I guess there's more trust involved, I would say, with like smaller organizations. All, all organizations are corruptible. However, I think with grassroots, uh, there just tends to be more direct action. Okay, so beyond big NGOs, there are smaller efforts making huge differences. Here are two examples. One, Migrant Offshare Aid Station, MOAS. MOAS is a foundation based in Malta whose mission is to prevent migrant and refugee deaths at sea while crossing the Mediterranean in unsafe vessels. 
<coughs> Through its rescue vessel, MY Phoenix, and other vessels and aircraft, MOAS has saved more than 10,000 lives. Uh, and you can learn how to fundraise and donate on the MOAS website. Again, that is Migrant Offshore Aid Station. Next, Refugees Welcome. Uh, Fluchtlinge Willkommen, or Refugees Welcome, is essentially an Airbnb for refugees in Germany and Austria created by a couple based out of Berlin. Refugees can apply to be matched with a participating German or Austrian resident as a roommate. More than 400 refugees have applied so far, and 124 have been successfully matched. Refugees Welcome helps participants pay rent and utilities through donations. You can help by supporting the crowdfunding campaign here. Again, that is Refugees Welcome. Next, number four, support UNHCR's private sector partnerships. Okay, um, I'm going to, all right, private sector. I'm going to actually skip that one. Next, because I, I, yeah. Uh, next, five, volunteer your time and skills. While donations to refugee organizations are certainly helpful, the scope of the problem requires more tangible help from those who can offer it. The International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, IFRC, has volunteering opportunities in local chapters around the world, while the IRC has opportunities in the U.S. and Or you can create your own uh, iRescue fundraising campaign. The American Refugee Committee International also has both domestic and overseas volunteer opportunities. Online organizing and petition site Avaz, uh, it's A-V-A-A-Z, uh, has a volunteering page set up for supporting refugees in the UK and to answer frequently asked questions. The UNHCR has de designated UN volunteers, and you can also volunteer for the United Nations online by contributing your skills to organizations over the internet. Number six, spread awareness. That's what this is, spreading awareness. Uh, when it comes to the refugee crisis, staying silent is one of the worst things you can do. Spread awareness online and through social media and generate discussions among your own communities about the, issue, the issues refugees are facing. And if you're a teacher, you can use UNHCR's resource for teaching young people about migration and refugees. So, yes, I've learned a lot. Hopefully you have too. Again, some really great uh, resources out there and organizations doing really good work. So if you're able to help spread the word, educate oneself and one's peers. Uh, if, you're, if, you ha if you're able to donate capital, do that as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's a drop in the bucket, but it's something, right? Okay, on to other things. I'm going to go right into the next story. And the next story is about sex work and how it's criminalized uh, in many places, which I think is pretty wrong. I think most things, I'm not really into the criminalization of anything, actually, besides war, but war is legal, so go figure. Anyway, I guess if it's profitable, ugh, not a fan of war. So, okay, so, uh, so Rent Boy, which is a, a website, was, uh, uh, it was raided. And uh, a person who's a sex worker wrote uh, an anonymous article on The Guardian, and I thought I would share it. And uh, this is just knowing folks who, who do sex work and hearing their stories and just what they go through. And it's the f just the fact that it's, it's still criminalized is ridiculous and unsafe. And again, it's like punishing, the idea of punishing people doesn't serve to, to help. It doesn't help anything at all. So this is, comes from The Guardian. Again, the author is anonymous. And the title is, Rent Boy Wasn't My Brothel. It was a tool to stay alive in this economy of violence. Uh, the prosecution of the escort site is a symptom of, the, of law enforcement's insidious efforts to disrupt sex workers' 
uh, networks of mutual support and safety. Uh, pushed out of, pushed, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll get my reading voice on. Um, pushed out of home by evan ev evangelical parents as a teen when I came out. I worked double shifts as a busboy, pieced together odd construction jobs and yard work, and informally traded sex for money and shelter, sometimes with friends my age, but more often with well-moneyed older men. So by the time I posted my first ad on Craigslist's erotic services section, it was just another, albeit particularly odd job. I hadn't been paid a living wage before Craigslist. After months of knee-scraping encounters, I began to get a handle on it. It took three years to make the transition from $50 blow and goes to a $200 an hour encounter rent boy. My business weathered first Craigslist move to, char uh, to charge $10 for posts during an, its adult services rebrand, and then the pro pro ah, prohibi prohibi prohibitionist panic of 2008. The activists among us dubbed it the Pink Scare, which triggered an escalating machinery of fees, phone authentication, and credit card capturing requirements uh, designed to facilitate Craigslist emerging collaboration with the Boys in Blue. Phone authentication reduced ads by 80%. Craigslist announced as, and as a result, 2.88 million US posters uh, were pushed to other means of soliciting clients. Uh, the Polaris project estimated, uh, estimated there were 3.6.5 million adult services ads per year on Craigslist. Then, on September 4th, 2010, Craigslist.com bowed to the pressure of 43 vote-starved U.S. states and territories, attorneys general, and closed its adult services section, and I was out of a job, or at least a means to connect with my employers. Craigslist closure resulted in a 50% reduction in online advertising sales to people in the, se in the sex trades. Fortunately, the growth I had achieved in my business beca because of Craigslist meant I was able to squeak by most months and still meet the $59 monthly fee for rentboy.com postings. Then again, I am a white, masculine-presenting top, unlike many of the people with whom I worked alongside for specific clients, particularly my coworkers who are transgender, gender nonconforming, bottoms, and or of color. I went to rentboy.com with a higher fee already secured, the capital contribution for my first ad, a second-hand laptop to set up shop, and a nest egg to lean on during the dry months. In a statistical study of escorts advertising on a premium platform in the U.S. similar to Rentboy, on average, escorts charge $200 per hour for an outcall, meaning a date with a client where they play the host, but with a standard deviation of $64.46. The comparative earnings of escorts on non-premium sites like Backpage or Craigslist have always been significantly less, while no reliable study has yet pinpointed earnings on these providers. In New York City, my going rate in, on Craigslist and back, Backpage uh, were between $100 and $150 each visit, although I occasionally charged $50 when my rent came due. Uh, it was always a fraction of the $200 to $250 I could reli reliably charge on Rentboy. But on August 25th, 2015, the U.S. government, here, here's where we get go. That's the backstory. So then this person says, on Oct August 25th, 2015, the U.S. government arrested seven key rentboy.com staff and felony on fel felony racketeering charges served warrants authorizing the seizure of over $1.4 million of alleged criminal proceeds from six bank accounts and shuttered the domain of rentboy.com, and they ended a reliable, safe way 
I had to find clients. The U.S. Uh, attorney responsible for this raid claims that between 2010 and 2015, RentBoy collected over $10 million in gross proceeds from their minimum monthly subscriber fees of $59.95. The law enforcement agencies involved stand to benefit directly from at least $1.4 million in seized assets, each dollar earned by, this, by the sweat and tears of those of us who advertise on RentBoy to fund their ongoing enforcement efforts to lower our uh, wages and rip up the modicum of safety we've carved out on third-party platforms like rentboy.com. The federal prosecution of third-party advertisers like Rentboy and My Red Book and looming on the horizon, that pesky people peddler Backpage.com will not result in a worldwide financial crisis in the formal economy, but it will destroy an informal economy that includes many of us who are undocumented or don't have a degree or other means to surmount the high barriers of entry to an occupation in the formal economy. Uh, these advertising sites represent the most equalizing force in the sex industry in generations because they allow for anyone and uh, allow for anyone to advertise their services for, for a small for a small fee from a position of safety and without paying 50% of your fees to agencies and other parasites. These platforms are directly responsible for moving many of us into safer working conditions while the mounting pressures of prohibit 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 <laughs> prohibit prohibit in prohib prohibitionist uh, campaigns and pro uh, prosecutorial whack-a-mole instead open us up to policing and labor exploitation. The prosecution of Rent Boy is only one symptom of law enforcement's far uh, larger and more insidious efforts to criminalize people in the sex trades networks of mutual support and safety. The latest e-raid on Renpoi is nothing compared to the daily street sweeps of street families, the SWAT team raids on massage parlors, and shared apartments where we gather to increase our security. The constant interrogation and arrest of people who, who are or are profiled as trading sex for carrying condoms and are the targeting and the targeting of people of color for prostitution-related arrests and prosecutions every day, everywhere. Craigslist, My Red Book, or Rent Boy weren't perfect. They all require the, um, us to be able to pay upfront capital costs and have some technological capacity. Many escorts had to contend with price differentials subject to the racialized and ableist whims of a discriminatory consumer market. Like most other businesses, the sites were already were all, always already shot through with occupational barriers to entry and earnings that are essential to post-industrial capitalism. But we can't afford to lose even one more tool that keeps us alive in this economy of violence. There are already too few options for people in the sex trades to sacrifice another to the legions of the hand-wringingly ring, ring, pious. It's high time to circle the wagons. We must, we must preserve the scraps of real estate that remain to us whether on the street corners or internet brothels where we ply our trade and keep the political scavengers at bay. Those of us who trade sex uh, need better working conditions, living wage opportunities, shelter, and long-term affordable housing options, and the closing of the gender and race wage gaps, and the homophobia and transphobia that fuel job discrimination in the formal economy. What we don't need is one more obstacle to the, this month to the month's rent or our children's health insurance co-pays. The criminally self, and the par this last paragraph I feel like sums it up the best. Uh, so, uh, 
the criminally self-serving uh, publicity stunts represented by the closure of rentboy.com and my red book are nothing but a knot in the ever-expanding dragnet of state violence it is population control by other means and it does nothing to improve our lives or our safety Instead, these enforcement actions line the pockets of an owning class and deflate our earnings so that the same prosecutors and politicians who, pers who persecute us can better afford to pay for our cake, eat it, and screw us too. So again, this comes from Anonymous, and this was posted on The Guardian. It says, Anonymous is a member of the hashtag hookup collaborative, a loose working group of people who have advertised and people in community with advertisers on rentboy.com, including lawyers, community members, and organizers. It is not affiliated with any company or organization. So again, just seeing how like everything is, is connected in a way, and that kind of goes back to people uh, in positions of power abusing their authority, and you know, punishing people doesn't seem to help anyone at all. So we're going to go into a... Uh, a song, and then we'll be back with some more news. And here's a song uh, I was going to play last week, didn't quite get to it. So this is uh, Atlas Genius with Molecules.
welcome back. Um, I'm ready for some more news. Uh, hopefully you are as well. Well, it's, you know, that's the thing too. The thing I like about doing this show is that it makes me actually read the news. And I, I tend to stay as abreast as I can. Uh, and it's difficult. I understand the, the inclination to want to either ignore that it's going on or maybe acknowledge it and then not do anything about it. Um, but very, the very least, uh, one can at least talk about it, I think, and uh, acknowledge that it's going on because I feel like quite often if something was going on and I needed help or I wasn't able to get the word out, I would want someone else to, I would appreciate if someone else released it to talk about it, I think, because we're here to help each other. Why else, why else are we here? Uh, that's, that's what I think about it anyway. Speaking of helping each other, we've got someone in office who doesn't really think about helping people, and his name is Mayor Ed Lee. And I'm just saying that because that's kind of that's what's been that's what's been going on. So there's going to be, uh, unfortunately, I think unfortunately, maybe it's it's fortunate for some people, unfortunate for others, and that's the Super Bowl is going to be here this year, next year. It's it's coming. Anyway, so there was this idea of hey, let's have a party because it's Super Bowl and there's a lot of money. Uh, and resources invested in professional sports. And I know it brings people together, and I know there's, like, folks who, and I grew up, like, really, I was a huge, like, Bulls fan. I grew up, like, outside of Chicago, so I, I, I understand, and I have a lot of a lot of friends who are, and family members who are really into to professional sports, and I totally acknowledge that. I just think sometimes when res- if there's resources and money, it shouldn't necessarily just go to professional sports. It can also go to helping people. So what the mayor said recently, and I'm going to look for this article here because I'm just kind of going off the top of my head right now. He was quoted as saying that they need to move people, homeless people out of the way uh, to make room for the celebrations uh, of, uh, for the Super Bowl festivities, even though it's going to, it's going to be held in Santa Clara, which isn't in San Francisco proper. However, they wanted to like, if they can have like a parade or whatever they do, they, people are going to be in town visiting and, and, and they like, oh, well, we need to, his idea is to get rid of quote unquote I'm not going to quote him. I'll find his quote, so I actually can quote him, uh, to you know relocate the folks who are homeless. And this, and it's kind of like, well, it's preposterous. That this is coming from the mayor of this city, and it's also this idea: if like you actually believed in relocating them, why not find housing for them, permanent housing for them, and not just because the Super Bowl is happening here? What hasn't that that should have always been a priority, but it hasn't really been a priority with his administration, which we kind of know about, and that's what happens when you are so aligned with the big tech businesses and Airbnb, you know, like businesses that maybe focus on profit and not so much people. Unfortunately, there's a lot of businesses like that, and I think if you are, and he wasn't even necessarily an elected official, though, that's the thing, too. Um, however, if you're unofficial, you have a responsibility to help people and to, to do your best to help the citizens of this of this city. And to, to say the opposite is just kind of disgusting when, when these are people in power who have, they have authority and they have resources and they have the media behind them. I'm going to find his quote so I can stop just, you know, talking about it like that. But it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's really just disgusting and really, it's it's sad, and that's another common theme on this show. I find is uh, people in positions of authority who make things worse for everybody else. And obviously, yeah, we're all people. No one's perfect. However, I do feel like if that's your job, if your job is to, uh, if you've been hired to uh, take part in a city where you make things easier for people, and you're given a lot of resources and a lot of time. I'm repeating myself right now, but it's just uh, it's. 
it makes me very sad to think about. I'm going to go find his coat. Okay. This is coming from the Chronicle. So the Chronicle, uh, it's a bit mainstream for me, but even on the Chronicle, the, the, the title is Ed Lee Urges Home, Homeless to Self-Deport. That comes from the, the fucking Chronicle. So this is not some, you know, little underground. This is not just like, this is coming from the Chronicle. Oh, Ed Lee or just homeless to self-deport. I'll read a little bit about this. I'm probably going to get angry. That's the great thing about this show. There's always a moment when I get really upset and angry. Not always, but quite often. If I read the news, there's, a, there's an article that really will kind of set me off. And obviously, there's a lot of depressing things going on and frustration and injustice. And it's... This is just... Maybe because it's local and it, it's happening here. And or it's... Oh... I'm just anyway. So, okay, so this happened. Uh, Ed, okay, I'm gonna also so San Francisco Chronicle, and the author is John Carroll. All right, this comes from August 31st, 2015, so very recent. Uh, so this happened. Ed Lee told homeless people on the Embarcadero that they will have to leave the street before the week-long waterfront-spanning Super Bowl carnival of cross-promotional opportunities that will precede the 2016 game. That's just. Great. Oh, that's all it says. That's uh, all it says. Okay. Oh, no. It's a paid site. That's a thing. That's a thing. All right. That's a paid site. So I don't have the – I don't uh, subscribe to the Chronicle. But that's pretty much all you need to know, really. Do we need any more specifics other, th- other than the fact that the mayor told homeless folks to uh, self-deport? And on the program before, we've had folks from the Coalition on Homelessness, and we've read the survey. And, of course, you know, with authority – figures and law enforcement they make things a lot worse for homeless folks and this idea is that at the end of the day folks who are doing outreach need you know the, the idea should be to make sure folks are housed and safe and have their needs met and the guests we have on the program today um, we'll, we'll be talking about that for sure and it's just I, I it's so frustrating that the people in office People, in, that's, the, that's the ongoing theme. I can't really talk more about that because that's just kind of what it is. That's what it boils down to is people in positions of authority make things worse a lot of the time. Not uh, not everyone, um, but it seems to be a re- recurring pattern, especially like the, the mayor, the very least. And I'm not a politician. Like I couldn't, I don't think I could be in that in that kind of role. But you, it's, and it's, I'm sure it's not easy, but the fact that it, he said this is just disgusting really. And I can't, there's no way to defend it. There's no way anyone can defend that, I think. So uh, that's what I got to say about that. So I'm going to do one more story, and then we'll bring in uh, play some music, and then we'll bring in our guest, who I'm very excited to talk to, and that's Dr. Isaac Jackson. So this is another – see, there's actually a positive story coming about, a positive story. And um, that is about uh, prisons and how there's been some progress. I'm a prison abolitionist. I believe that we shouldn't have prisons and this at least comes from sometimes when there's good things that happen, it's really just a, it's something bad that's no longer being done, which is a, an unusual way of looking at it, but that's kind of what it is. It's like, oh, here's something that was really terrible that's no longer being done, or there's an action made to stop it. So it's good, and then it's also just fascinating to look at in the, in the, the bigger picture is that the fact that this is happening in the first place is wrong. I feel that way a lot about uh, cannabis legalization, where the fact that it's been criminalized in the first place is totally wrong. And so I'm happy to, you know, when I'm ready that it's decriminalized or made more accessible for people and people are released from prison. And, um, yeah, 
it's just the fact that it was like that it was decriminalized in the first place is just there's so much work being done to undo the harm that's already been put in place. So this comes from the LA Times, another big paper. California agrees to move thousands of inmates out of solitary confinement. Positive story. Thank goodness. This is written by uh, Paige St. John. Uh, Ending years of litigation, hunger strikes, and contentious debate, California has agreed to move thousands of state prisoners out of solitary confinement under the terms of a landmark lawsuit settlement. Corrections officials who have long used indefinite isolation to control violent prison gangs will will cease the practice and return nearly 2,000 inmates to the general population according to the agreement announced Tuesday. Some of these inmates, some of those inmates have been in isolation without significant human contact for more than three decades. Uh, I know there's not, not supposed to be any like dead air on the radio, but I, uh, without significant human contact for more than, I can't even imagine. Okay. California has been among a, the, a shrinking number of states that will keep inmates isolated on the grounds of gang membership rather than behavior at a time of increasing national criticism over the use of solitary confinement. This is a game changer. California has led the nation in keeping people in cold storage, said forensic psychiatrist Terry Coopers, one of the several criminal justice experts who had filed research findings in the case, contending that prolonged time in solitary left inmates with psychological damage, increased anxiety, disordered thinking, and a high risk of suicide. The settlement between the state and a group of inmates at Pelican Bay State Prison calls for limiting solitary confinement to those who commit serious offenses such as murder, extortion, or assault while in prison. It also calls for the state to create high security units that uh, that nevertheless allow some group activity for prisoners who are deemed too dangerous for mainline housing. The settlement agreement is subject to a comment period, hearings, and likely acceptance by U.S. District Judge Claudia Wilkin. If she approves, the state will have a year to make the changes. Lawyers for inmates and a federal uh, magistrate would then monitor the outcome for two years. California is not doing away with solitary confinement. I'm going to add in yet because that would be a dream. Uh, so in the future, let's let's wish for that and work for that. Uh, about 4,600 prisoners, Jesus, <sighs> about 4,600 prisoners will remain in isolation for shorter terms. Nearly 1,000 others, including hundreds of mentally ill offenders, why are they even in jail in the first place, uh, remain in modified isolation, allowed more time out of their cells. Typically, inmates in solitary spend 22 to 23 hours a day in their cells, most without windows. Telephone calls are limited to rare emergencies, and visits with family take place through thick glass. The prisoners exercise alone in small pens with a small handball or pull-up bar. Among the criteria the state has used to isolate prisoners are certain tattoos, possession of artwork with gang symbolism, and statements from informants. And until recently, the only way out of solitary was to become an informant, uh, a policy that critics said endangered inmates' lives. The prisoner who served in solitary longest was Hugo Pinnell, who after 43 years in isolation was released to the general prison population earlier this month. He was killed days later during a prison yard riot. The litigation settled Tuesday was filed in 2009 by two inmates accused of membership in the Aryan Brotherhood. 
Todd Ashker and Danny Troxell. Both denied active membership with the gang. Ashker was among the leaders of a series of mass hunger strikes, including one in 2013 that was the largest in the nation. Their lawsuit was picked up and argued by the Center for Constitutional Rights, a New York-based advocacy group. Its president and lead attorney in the case, Jules Lobel, said he hoped the settlement would be a model for other states. I would get rid of solitary totally, Lobel said. I think it's inhumane. The state prison guards union, which has which was blocked by the court from intervening in the case, opposed the settlement, raising fears of a return to the prison violence of the 1980s that pushed the state to enlarge its use of solitary confinement. Okay, if people weren't in prison in the first place, there wouldn't be as much violence in prison. Okay. All right. On Tuesday, a spokeswoman for the California Correctional Peace Officers Association said the union was disappointed that the practitioners who are actually doing the work are just now seeing the settlement. Last year, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy questioned the human toll of indefinite solitary, citing the case of a California death row inmate who had been isolated for 26 years. In July, President Obama told guests at an NAACP convention that long-term isolation was "Quote unquote, not smart." He asked about he asked for a Justice Department investigation of solitary confinement in federal penitentiaries, and a Human Rights Monitor for the United Nations was among the experts to file reports in the California case. Juan E. Mendez, Special Rapporteur on Torture for the UN, concluded that treatment of prisoners in solitary at Pelican Bay accounted to torture or cruel, inhumane, or degrading treatment or punishment and was contrary to the practices of civilized nations. Other states have been more aggressive about dismantling solitary. Colorado, for instance, has reserved isolation for those who commit prison offenses, and it caps those sentences at 12 months. During ending a practice in heavy use in California for more than 30 years is difficult, said Jeffrey Beard, who took over the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation in 2012. The state prison system was overcrowded and in crisis, subject to federal oversight, court monitors, and expensive litigation. You had a system that was so overcrowded over the years that they just went from one crisis to another, and you didn't have the time to look at some of those operational issues, Beard said. In the last three years, he has overseen reductions in prison crowding and improvements in inmate Healthcare and ended a number of litigated practices, including the use of pepper spray to control mentally ill prisoners. In the last two years, the state has removed about 1,100 inmates from solitary confinement who showed no evidence of gang activity. Beard said that success, as much as anything, paved the way for Tuesday's settlement. Beard said he expects 1,800 of the 2,800 prisoners currently in long-term isolation to work their way into the general prison yard over the next two years. Those who fail a transition program would be sent to a new high-security unit. At the same time, a new form of a solitary unit will be created to house inmates who are deemed too risky for a group setting. That unit is expected to be small and less restrictive um, than existing solitary confinement areas, and the state will seek behavioral, behavior changes that would ultimately allow those prisoners to move. We're not going to just leave them there, Beard said. We don't believe that it's good for anybody to keep them locked up for 10, 20, 30 years. So again, uh, some progress being made uh, and things that, you know, it's end of, I don't believe solitary should exist in the first place. Um, 
but it's it's work to be it's good that it's being reduced at least so i'm gonna play some music and then we'll be back with uh dr isaac jackson and i'm gonna play another radiohead song because they've been in my head and why not so this is also off okay computer and this is called lucky And here we go. Uh, there we go. Um, this isn't this isn't lucky by Radiohead. So I don't know what it is exactly, but we're just gonna. Oh, I hear a couple of things, and I do hear lucky. Experimental music, right? Here we go. It's gonna be a glorious 
welcome back to the weekly review and i am joined by dr isaac jackson who is the founder of the san francisco drug users union yes and also um a committed member of another group called um urban survivors union excellent yeah thank you so much for coming in thank you thanks for, for inviting me yeah so um feel free to uh i guess just, I've, uh, yeah. there's a lot to talk about so. Well, I guess since I'm an opportunity to be on the radio, I thought I'd, I'd let everybody know that um, if you think the war on drugs it sucks and needs to be ended immediately, yep. you're not alone. And there's been a movement of people trying to do this for um, decades now. And I think we're getting to um, critical mass because the funny thing about waging a war, any war, including the war on drugs, it's expensive. Yep. And so we have people who are normally not even aligned with us ideologically on the right saying, hey, we're spending all this money, you know, in prisons. What for? They don't do anything, which is the, which is the dirty little secret of the, of the drug war. After 40 years of trying to uh, scare people away from using drugs, we have more people using drugs than before it started. The drugs are cheaper than before and more widespread. It is complete failure. And we just need the courage as a community um, to just demand, like, stop the madness. Yeah. Um, and the way I, my angle on, on this, um, uh, this situation is I work with drug users specifically because very, very often um, we are shut out by what I call the, the nonprofit industrial complex mm. where people, um, you know, have all these agencies and, you know, public health you know, bureaucracies. Um, to help us, you know, when we can help ourselves, we have the, you know, the, the, just give us a chance. We know what we want and we know what we need. Um, and one thing that we are really adamant about in Urban Survivors Union, um, and also uh, Drug Users Union, I guess, um, I, haven't, I haven't worked with them in a long time, so I, I'm not, not going to speak about, about them too much, but um, we believe that it, it is our constitutional right to both protest the law and ask for it to be changed, and if and um, not every drug user is a problematic user. Some people feel um, that it's part of our liberation to be able to do what we want with our bodies, yes. and that's part of a whole history of when Europeans came to America. Um, anything that wasn't alcohol was was evil, and it's been, you know you know the you know the first drug law in in the United States. You know where it was first drafted and implemented? No. Right here in San Francisco. Oh no. Yes. Um, back when um, they were importing um, people from Asia, Chinese, to build the railroads, um, there was all this scare about um, white slavery and opium dens and Chinese people, you know, luring our young women into these, like, you know, illiterate places. And, and they passed the first law because of that. So the, the drug war has a real racist history of, of um, targeting people, minority people, and demonizing, demonizing them. Um, so there's not really a lot to, to say good about it. Yeah. You know, I mean, let's just face it, after 40 years, time for a change. Um, and what we're advocating for is we want to have all drugs. Um, I guess when you're, when you're ending a war, you want to have kind of like a, just stop all, all actions, right? So we want to decriminalize instantly, like no more people going to jail. Uh, and then we can build from there on how, how that's going to work. But this gotta, that has to stop almost immediately because um, that's what's killing communities. Yeah. Um, because uh, people can't get jobs with a, with a record. Um, 
sometimes they learn new things to do that they didn't know before going. You know, prisons could be a, a you know, graduate school of, of um, crime. Um, and I don't consider drug use a crime. If I'm, if I'm doing it in the privacy of my home or with friends and, and, um, and we're not bothering anybody and we, we're taking care of our, our, our situation, we're not um, you know, uh, needing a lot of help, then we should be left alone. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, there's all kinds of trends and counter-trends. For instance, um, there's a lot of talk that marijuana will be legal in California in a couple of years because of this new initiative. Yeah. Maybe. We'll see. Um, we, we tried to do that a couple, uh, maybe five years ago. And you know who, who lobbied against it? The, the, the marijuana growers up in uh, upstate, um, upstate California. Oh. They were saying it's going to lower our prices. Huh. And then I said, you're crazy. I mean, you're gonna, you, someone's going to get put in jail because your prices will remain high? Listen to what you're saying. So we have to be careful, and that's why we call for decriminalization. Regulation and legalization, it opens the back door for the capitalism to come in and make it really messed up. Yeah. So, um... Yeah, I think... Yeah. Well, that's, like, that's one fear is that as it becomes legalized, who's going to be profiting? Right, right. And all the violence around uh, drug, uh, drug culture is directly related to prohibition. Um, because uh, you have, uh, you know, certain organizations are vying for select routes and, you know, to get in. And um, it's one of these things that, because it fundamentally has no real moral basis, it's, it's from the outset a corrupting influence in our society. Um, because there's no, even though this money is happening and there's no reason for it to be happening. And that's why the, the drug war will never stop drugs coming in. It's too, you know, it's one of the most powerful, um, Industries in the world. I think that only only industries that have a bigger um, financial base besides drugs. I'm including pharmaceuticals in, in this. Is uh, entertainment, the military, and I think it's healthcare. Maybe those are bigger than than um, this whole drug scene. So um, some people have pie in this. I think I call it pie in the sky. I shouldn't. Uh, dreams of like, oh, we can get the money from this. We can use it to like build new schools and. You know, I don't think that would be wonderful, but our track record on really doing the right thing is spotty. <laughs> like that. <laughs> so that's why I personally would like to see just stop people, just stop people being arrested. Yes. And let the, the current drug culture figure out where they want to go from there. Um, and we've come a long way. Um, Prop 49 passed by you know a majority vote last uh, November, which which eliminated all felony drug charges in California. So no more possession uh, felony charges. It's misdemeanors at the most. And uh, George Gascon um, pushed hard for that. Um, so while it's not perfect, I wouldn't see it legalized. I, I wouldn't see it legalized. I mean, excuse me, I wouldn't see it decriminalized. Yeah. It's, it's better than getting a felony, yeah. which you don't deserve just for having some dope on you. And that's just for cannabis? No, all drugs. All dr- okay. Heroin, meth, you name it. No more. You cannot get a felony charge for just possession. That's great. That's really good. It's a good step. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm more of a radical. I like to just, like, just do it and see what happens. Yes. yes. Um, but I know that, that elected officials and stuff like that, they have to go more slow. So, so I'm hoping, hoping that once people realize that this is working, then we can take the next step to decriminalization. Yeah. And... Um, and, and the way drug users fit into this is that we have to show our community uh, that we're in that we're responsible people, that we can take care of ourselves. 
Um, that's why I volunteer and do um, satellite syringe exchange to keep the dirty needles off the street and, and to show that we can, we can organize and, and take care of our health. Um, that's why um, we have a program, um, well, challenging the city on the refusal to give out crack pipes, uh, which we think is basically uh, slightly racist um, uh, because it's a perception that um, the crack is more predominant in African-American in, in, uh, communities than other communities. Our data kind of questions that, by the way. Um, but uh, yeah, I just tell you the story. What happened was um, about two years ago, this committee recommended the Department of Public Health start handing out crack pipes because um, they, they could be a possible vector for transmitting disease. Okay. Because that's why we have needle exchange to prevent Hep yes. C and you know HIV. And so people were saying, well, there's no proof. And we said, well. <laughs> This is your inside question right now. What, wouldn't, I said, wouldn't you feel horrible if there was a connection? We just do it. And they said, no. So the mayor was really adamant about it. In fact, I've never seen, I've been doing activist work and uh, community organizing for a while, and I've never seen a bureaucracy move so fast to discredit what we were doing when we announced we were going to do it. I was interviewed by KABC, and then the next day the mayor called them up to, to reiterate, the city is not doing this, the city's not doing this. I said, wow, I mean, that's, to me, that's almost infringing on my free speech rights. I thought that the Constitution says the government cannot, you know, get away with me saying things. But anyway, Ed Lee, I agree with what you're saying about Ed Lee. He's not, um, he's not totally, how can I say it, um, uh, transparent. Yes. <laughs> he's not. I mean, I remember the day he announced uh, he was going to run. It was the last day you could file. And there was a debate at the Castro of the candidates. And he showed up. Oh my God! They were so angry at him because his whole thing was, "I'm just a normal technocrat. I don't want to run for mayor. I just want to take, you know, make sure the Gavin Newsom's seat, you know, is warm for somebody else, and I'm not going to run again." Well, you know, um, there you go. So, um, and also, I have nothing against Ed Lee personally. I never met the man. Yeah. But um, and and I do like what, a couple of things he's done. I like the, the free bus fare. And I like um, his transparency with the budget process. But um, he, uh, um, somehow has his, he wants to, okay, you know the tech, the tech boom, right? Everything coming, changing the city? Yeah. He, I thought he just said mid-market. I didn't remember him saying the whole city's going to be transformed. And uh, I'm, I, they knew that it was going to be kicking out people, it was going to be displacing people. How could they not know that? I think there's a grander vision that we're not really privy to. It's becoming clearer. I'm not, I'm not thinking seriously, but, you know, I used to live in New York City, and I saw the Manhattanization of um, the city happening right before our eyes. I, I, I lived in East Village for a long time, and once I left, I knew I could never come back because when I lost my rent control apartment, I, and I, I would be for, uh, priced out. Now, I went back to New York uh, last year, and I saw the, the end result of that. Yes. Is... Yeah. Um, uh, chain stores on the edge of um, East Village, uh, swarms of you know uh, collegiate-looking undergraduates on, on dates and wearing sweaters, and I didn't see the artists, I didn't see the street performers, I didn't see the, the funky bookstores or record stores. Uh, it just broke my heart. So we can't let that happen here. But I mean, well, we'll, we'll we should give it a good try. Yeah. 
I mean, I feel like uh, in a way it almost already has. I know, like, I know. And I, I lived in New York City. That's actually where I moved from. Oh yeah, you too. And it was I, even the time I was there from 2002 to 2011, and even in that time, I saw it gradually change. When I was there, I went to Harlem um, to um, go to Sylvia's. When I was there, I was shocked at the number of um, white people walking around at night, as if it was like they were like you know, at Gramercy Park or something. I said, wow, this place has really changed, you know, this, because, because, um, you know, when you have segregation or, um, it's not just, it's not always, how can I say it? it's a dialectic, because out of segregation and oppression, you also get community, right? And Harlem has always been a really vibrant source of culture and, you know, energy for the African-American community in New York and maybe the, the country. And I, I was just saying, what, is this going to be diluted down too, to like, a, this another neighborhood? Like um, Liberation Bookstore, the first black-owned and operated bookstore um, focused on, on the writings of black people, which have been an icon in, in that community since the 50s. I remember my parents taking me to Liberation Bookstore as a kid. Um, I guess I was kind of a red diaper baby. <laughs> but but, um, but still, that's a, you know, hey, I'm proud. Yeah. I'm proud that I had parents who were progressive. Yes. My, my dad was a union organizer and my mom worked at the... Uh, t- teaching, um, she spent her whole career teaching uh, people in East Harlem. She could have easily, seniority moved on to better, not better, but easier schools, middle class. You know, I want, I, I love this community. I want to help. So, um, those are my roots. So now it's a new issue: mass incarceration. Yes. Uh, unfair drug laws. Yes. Um, stigmatization of drug users, yes. sometimes causing suicide and uh, other harmful effects, um, and. Um, you know, it's 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 uh, Let me tell you something else that's happened that's kind of positive. Though. I've been doing looming the thing. Um, you know, the Human Rights Commission here in the city. Yeah. They came out with a report. I should have brought it with me. It was I helped them put it together. It was like a two three year project, but it, they wanted to study the impact of the drug war on people in San Francisco mm-hmm. and the human rights. And they came out with a really great report saying that this is a terrible system, people denying being denied their rights, and. Um, and they didn't even touch on the HIV issues. Mm. I mean, because, you, you know, as you know, um, HIV can be spread through sharing needles. Yeah. Um, what, what, what impact has this, has this had on the people, you know, um, who feel the shame because of what they do because it's, society doesn't like them? That's jeopardizing their health. Absolutely. You know, so anyway, um, I jumped around a lot, I guess I should Oh yeah, no, no. But it's... but but the crack pipe thing, we we've been doing that. Um, it's, a, it's a pilot study that we initiated on our own. We got our own funding. We give out fifty pipes every Tuesday, uh, t- uh, twice in the Tenderloin, um, once in the, in the South America, and a fourth a week. It kind of floats around depending where the need is, and um, people want to know more about that and want to volunteer or come down to what we do. You can you can email us at info at urbansurvivorsunion.org. Great. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we want, to, we want to hear real dialogue from people. We just don't want people to come and say, oh, you're doing great. Because people, people get really angry at what we do. Like, you know, you're enabling drug use. We want to talk to people about that. We want to hear that because, you know, we're not perfect. Maybe there's something we're missing. You know, um, that's the spirit in which we do it, that we're not experts. We don't want to be experts. Um, but, uh, so, yeah, people should always... Um, Feel free to engage us. Just don't be violent and just don't, you know, be belittling. But we love to talk to folks about what we do. Absolutely. So, um, what are you, 
in terms of like future plans for the organization? Well, um, we have enough uh, pipes to go through the end of the year uh, through a private donor. Uh, but securing the money to, to pay for it has not been easy because <laughs> grants don't even like, think about it. Uh, there might be one agency that might do it. Um, so it's been a struggle to keep that uh, uh, um, going. So what we want to do in the final few months is give a real another push to getting this. Our goal is to get this implemented so all the needle changes in mm -hmm. the city have pipes. So, because we can't, you know, we're just a group of, you know, small number, uh, number of people in our group. We can't take care of all the needs in the city. The, the AIDS Foundation and the Needle Exchange and the Glide, who have weekly um, needle changes, they could be a, a perfect conduit for um, getting people. Because, look, you know what happens? People smoke crack, and then the pipe breaks. And they keep smoking and break some more, break I some see. more. And they cut themselves with the ragged edges and their bloody lips and they're passing it around for each other. They burn their fingers. And 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 also it makes you feel like, like crap. You know, that you have to deal with this little piece of thing. I mean, so we say, hey guys, we're not, we're not judgmental. We know that these things break. You know, you probably don't have a lot of money and you're going to try and stretch your money this way. Don't do that. It's unhealthy. We're going to give you a pipe so you can keep doing it without jeopardizing your health. Um, the research on this is still coming in. There's one study I read. I don't. I, don't, I didn't bring my citations with me. The audience has to trust me on this one. But it, if people are interested, they can they can write me an info address they gave out. But um, one study f clearly says that you know people burn themselves. You know, on the lips. People who got free pipes a lot less burns. That's to me. That's 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 a good enough for me. You know, I, I don't want to see several systems being burned so that we can stop them. Absolutely. You know, it's just, it's because of the stigma involved in it that the city feels justified in saying no. How can you say that? You see your citizens every week getting burned by something they do. Help them. Okay. Um, and another study said that um, they looked at um, IV, IV drug users and injectors who didn't use smoke crack and then people who did smoke crack along with IV drug use. And the group that smoked crack had had um, uh, had more people seroconverting earlier, mm -hmm. um, and a large yeah more large number in earlier. They don't know exactly what the, the factor is. Um, some people speculate it might be sex work. Uh, I think that's I think that's kind of like you know, it's blame on sex work. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, could be. I mean, I don't know. I don't keep up in mind. Um, but uh, that to me, that's enough to say, hey, look, we have two studies that show that there's a need for some help here. I don't know how people can, um, well, I know why, because, you know, the media went crazy when they heard about it yeah. last year. And and we, we got to the point, we said no more media, because media can be, media is not good if they are, they are re, they're not getting your, your message. Yes. Because a lot of the media was like, wow, this group is so far out, they even shocked San Francisco. And it's like, um, okay, well, maybe. Uh, it may be just one, one or two people, like the mayor was very powerful, but anyway. So we shut that down after a while because it was, people were, were quoting me yeah. from the articles. I, I would like open the Daily Beast and I'd oh, I know I'm going to be in Daily Beast. So it, it's a, the media can be really a parasitic and uh, I don't know. And I think also sometimes often work against Mm -hmm. people. I, I think more often than not it does because it, it helps with a lot of fear mongering and misinformation you know in San Francisco I've lived here um, since 92 
It's a very progressive, supportive community for drug users compared to most of the country. And I think I'd rather see people look at us as a role model of what the possibilities could be. And it's not perfect. Believe me, I'm not saying that we got it together and we're groovy. But um, uh, we, you know, we have demonstrated that drug users can handle responsibility and, and will step up to the plate. Excuse me. And in, in our own small way, I think we're, we're chipping at the, the drug war and, and giving it less validity, less justification. You know, that's... Uh, and I, you know, how I got into this work was really funny because I grew up on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. I went to really, you know, um, some really progressive um, uh, top-tier schools. Um, I received a, a Fulbright dissert- dissertation fellowship in you know, my last year to write my dissertation. So I was hoping to have a career as kind of a high-powered um, researcher mm-hmm. in a different area than, than what I'm doing now. Um, and then I moved to California, and I hit the wall of the drug war. Um, both in terms of um, encountering drugs that I didn't know that much about and um, being naive, which is a consequence of the stupidity of of classifying marijuana in the same category as heroin and cocaine. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you go like, okay, well, you know, I, I smoked marijuana, I, I didn't have any problems, so maybe, you know, meth would be okay, too. And and um, so that was kind of I went into it with my eyes closed and not knowing what I was doing. And I crashed and burned, and ended up on the street. Um, but um, thanks to harm reduction, I stopped beating myself up and say I'm a bad person because I, I did this. I I started to learn there there are ways that you can do this more safely. Because mm-hmm. the model behind harm reduction, is um, one one idea is like um, the user sets its own pace of what they want to do. Um, there's no 12 steps. There's no like, okay, now you got to do step five, and you gotta do, it's none of that. It's more like, what what are you capable of doing, and what impact can you have on your using that? We make it better for you. It could be quitting, but it could just be modifying it so that you don't get hurt. So, um, so I, I learned those principles, and then um, one day it just hit me, you know, like, hey, you know what? I have all these other skills that I had in a different life, uh, and people just see me as a junkie now, but what if I kind of pull those into like something that you know could be a catalyst for change, and it's kind of it kind of took off you know for for me and other people first with the drug users union and now the work we're doing now and we, and the, this movement of drug users are getting organized. It's a worldwide movement. Mm-hmm. And have you heard of Input? No, I haven't. International network of people who use drugs. It's an it's an international group. Um, there's Harm Reduction International. There's another group. There's drug user groups in Seattle, Chicago, New York City, um, and, and Vancouver is the grand grandparent of us all. I mean, they have you heard about the work they've been doing over the last 10, 15 years in Vancouver? No. Okay, they started a safe injection site huh. where people can come in and safely inject. Because one of the big problems with heroin is that because it's a street drug, you, sometimes people take too much yes. and they, they tend to OD. Um, there, they uh, can s- see what's going on and save you before you OD. That's why it's called a safe injection site. Um, and they, they've done that for like years and years and years. Um, and they've been, they've been really inspirational. Like, they, you know, wow, they did it. They, they really created an institution that the community needed, community wanted, and it's working. Wow, fantastic. What else can we do? So um, that's kind of where we're at. Um, um, it reminds me of the early days of like maybe 
the feminist movement or um, I don't know. Uh, you name your favorite, like you know, post-war, you know, a political uh, group. Um, you know, identity politics was a big rage for a while. You gotta go through that phase. Yes. We're like, we're not gonna work with anybody unless you're a drug user. We're not gonna talk to you. You're not a drug user. You're not important. And I, I, mean, I, I respect people who, 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 you know. But after a while, you know, you go like, hey, there are people who really honestly want to help us. They're not drug users. Why can't we work with them? Sure. So, um, you know, those are the kind of changes we're going through. Um, yeah. It's complex. Yeah, I'd say also just like looking at intersectionality and just seeing how many other people are also hurt by the prison industrial complex mm-hmm. and finding ways to work with other organizations and other people. Cause it's like, oh, we've got the same the same forces yeah. against us. The, the first movement that I really got involved in back in the 80s, um, well, I was a little bit, I mean, I'm older than you probably, so I was, I kind of cut my teeth a little bit on the anti-war movement in Vietnam War when I was a baby and a kid. And then from there I went to work with, um, in the 80s, 80s I worked on um, issues with black gay men, mm-hmm. trying to find an identity. Um, we formed a collective called the Black Heart Collective and we produced three magazines. Um, and we did it because we went to Christopher Street and other publishers and said, hey, how come you guys only publish white guys? Oh, we can't find any black writers who are good enough. I'm like, no, okay. So James Baldwin is not good enough. Uh, whatever. So we, we, we started this magazine, and we, um, uh, people like Essex Hemphill and Joe Beam, who unfortunately the AIDS crisis has taken them from us, were um, early contributors. So this notion of you, we don't know any writers, well, you're not looking for them. Yeah. It just drives me crazy. You know, and so the thing with drug users, it's sort of like, how come you guys don't have more drug users on staff? Oh, because they're difficult to work with, and do that. So I said, well, come up with some some like tools that will help us understand the problem. Um, and I, that's something I'm really interested in myself because um, uh, I think we can work in, in in the workplace with some you know some some uh, help. You know, because um, I've done it. You know, I was I I was in, I worked at a drug user union for a couple of years. And it's challenging um, because in an environment that no one cares that you're, you're a drug user. So does that mean that you can get high at work? No. Um, n- no, you can't. Because it's not fair to someone to come in and you're one way and then they, they go to the bathroom and come back and then you're, you're changed. That's the only reason why it's not good. Yeah. It's not that getting high is bad, but people come in, you know, the, you know, you have to you have a conversation with someone, you kind of get a context of where they're at, then 10 minutes later they're in a whole different area. And then also, if you do opioids and stuff, you tend to go to sleep and not out. It's not very pretty <laughs> to watch that. So um, one thing I came up with, I said, let's have a, a day where you can just have a day off, paid day off, you don't have to call in sick, you don't you have a no-show, you have a free no-show. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, sometimes, you know, you one of the big dangers is you cannot really know the strength of what you're doing from, from from purchase to purchase because it's not regulated, right? Yes, yes. Um. So, and you know who got that idea from? Muni. Huh. Yeah, they, I read the, someone left their contract in the back of the bus in one year, and I was reading it, and they had like two or three of those days in which you could you, be no call, no show, and you don't get n- nothing to happen to you. I said, it's good enough for Muni, it's good enough for drug users because we have those days sometimes. We only get two or three. Don't give them like comp bonds to do it forever. Sure. Because you know there's got to be because there's work to be done. Um, 
So those are the kind of things I'm interested in, and they seem like kind of, you know, when I talk to you, oh, that's really small, it's not like a big deal, but I think changing the culture to understand that we are human beings. Yes. We have, we have, we have desires and capabilities. A lot of us are disabled, um, and um, our drug use is a, is a result of our disability, not it doesn't cause it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we like to have the same kind of protections and understanding that the larger disabled community has. But drugs have such a like stigma. Just like, definitely. Ah, drugs! Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the 80s, and there's definitely that. There was like McGruff the crime dog, like mm-hmm. this propaganda mm-hmm. that we like learned in schools, and it was like don't don't try drugs. And there's of course nothing about you know pharmaceuticals or you know certain legal drugs right. certainly, and just a lot of misinformation about it. And no and no real research. Right. There's a lot of uh, old, you know, um, wives' tales and husband tales and a lot of just, you know, uh, nothing you can really sink your teeth into. That's starting to change. Um, Dr. Carl Hart, who is, works at Columbia University, he has, he has a book called, um, um, oh, I was going to say High Rise, but, um, oh my God, I can't really, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, Dr. Carl Hart, um, I'm reading it right now. It's a really good book, probably autobiographical, partly about his research. The gist of it is, his research shows that people who smoke crack and uh, do speed are not majorly uh, cognitively, cognitively impaired so they can't do tasks that other people do. So in other words, if somebody, someone is um, a word processor, mm-hmm. doesn't interact with the public, comes to work and is a little bit, you know, Coming down from like an all nighter or whatever, they may they may be able to perform that that as good as someone else who woke up that morning and you know had their coffee. Yeah. Um, there's more work that needs to be done, but it's not an automatic like oh my brain is fried I can't do anything. Yeah. Remember the commercial? This is your this is your brain on drugs. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, it's like it's, it's misinformation. Everyone's brain is not wired the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, a really good point. You know because um, depression. Oh, and don't get me started by Big Farmer, because uh, I I was taking antidepressants for a long time, yeah. and I started to and I started to realize like something was wrong because I'd have these suicide attempts I never had before, and then finally some investigative reporter discovered all these files they had hidden away that showed that in some people it it, it triggers suicide. Yes, yeah. Especially on, on teenagers, but also older people too, and like, they're hiding this stuff. So they could sell, you know, Prozac and other things like without any worry. I said I was a guinea pig. I could have died from that. And so I said no more. I can't trust them. Um, and so I self-medicate um, for my depression with you know street drugs. It's not it's not perfect, but you know what? Um, I'm not dependent on a big uh, corporation to yes. decide to tell me what's really, you know, going on. Yeah. Absolutely. And once I stopped taking them, my suicide attempts went away. Yeah. So I was one of those people that had, you know, a small number of people that, but no one told me about it, no one looked for it. It's just like, so Big Farmer is about profits uh, first, and that means they'll sweep stuff under the rug, which might, you know. So I don't know what to do about them. Um, someone said to me, hey, do you, would you love for them to come out with, like, pure forms of heroin or speed? I go, oh, not really. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the community's been wise. I mean, you, you, uh, most drugs you get on the street are cut with something else. But there's a reason why, because people don't want people to die. Mm. You know? And, and so, um, 
taking that away, there'd be a little whole rash of ODs. I think. I think it, uh, let people decide what they want. Give them choices. Yeah, I guess also the idea of, of people profiting off it and like the gov- like something so far away. Like I would imagine that folks who have, if you have a dealer, that relationship is a lot more direct. Mm-hmm. And trustworthy mm-hmm. in most cases than if you're buying from a company, you know, it's it's manufactured by people you've never met. The mm-hmm. it's so many other people are involved who don't know you personally. That's right. And then when they do their their uh, findings for the FDA to get it approved, it's generalized over, you know, a large number of people. It's, it's not pinpoint specifics. Um, so um, we're still learning a lot about the brain. It's just kind of amazing that um, like one generation, I'm going to get too into it, but one generation of antidepressants, Prozac, was just flood your brain with, like, you know, um, you know chemicals. They just want to pinpoint specific spots in your brain for, for that. So they're getting better at it, um, but uh, it's still, like, we're getting pigs. Yeah. So I don't really believe that like taking street drugs is that much more dangerous than taking pharmaceuticals. Um, so we have this concept called harm reduction for all, mm-hmm. which which is trying to broaden our our what's become a, almost a, a cliche of oh the poor IV drug user, you know we want to help them get clean needles, we want to help them, you know, and that's really great. But there's, what about the other kind of drug users? What about people who take pills? What about people who smoke it, snort it, whatever? There's nothing about that. Um, and so that's why we, another reason why we got pushed back from public health and, and the mayor's office because it's an inherent challenge to their, um, their institutions. That Because yeah, we come up and say, hey, you've been doing this for how many years? What about these other people? You're ignoring them. It's kind of difficult to say, oh, yeah, we're kind of like, we're the health department, but we didn't think about that. Get over it. We're not going to hold you, you know, uh, accountable and, and unless you don't want to do it after once you've been told. Yeah. That's how I feel about it. I mean, what, what, I mean, what, how do you feel about um, um, you know, uh, supporting drug users in their in their doing what they want to do? Well, I feel like that's I'm very much like people like own autonomy and like I feel like everyone has the right over their own bodies. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we live in a society where other folks um, feel like they have the right to tell other people what to do with their bodies. Right, and that goes into also like reproductive rights, for instance. Right, people don't have access to, to, to abortion services if they need that, and that's it's 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 similar in terms of people know their bodies more. Like people have should have the right to do with their with their bodies as they please, whether that's taking any kind of medication or any kind of health care. Birth control. It's up to yeah, it's it's up to them, mm-hmm. and the idea that some of it's criminalized and or threatened and or made unavailable is. It's it's backwards and it does more harm than good. It does har- it doesn't do any good. It just it does it's harm. Mm-hmm. It just provides harm. Well, that's I mean, you know, Margaret Sanger was arrested several times for trying to give women birth control in early part of the 20th century. Now I know she's a problematic figure, and people have been, you know going back and looking yeah. at what she's written. But putting that aside, I mean, um, um, women were really dying from too many births and. And I think it's a similar situation with ODs. People are dying from ODs needlessly because we, they don't want us to control our bodies. Yeah. Um, and the only thing they say is, oh, just be abstinent. Don't don't use. It's like, well, that's kind of like a tautology because that's why, that's one of the biggest reps I have with 12 Steps. I, I say, you know, 12 Steps is a, is, a, is a con game because the first step is don't use drugs. 
Okay, so you have a drug problem. You, okay, so you did that. Yeah, check. <laughs> and then the rest of the, I mean, but you've done it. Then, I mean, you can maintain that. Then you've really basically done it. The rest of the steps is just to kind of keep you in the game. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I was a, I was, I say this as an ex 12 step person. I was really, really into it at one point. You know, I don't know if you've ever been to meetings or not, but um, the whole culture around, you know, the secretary and treasurer and the coffee making and, and guest speakers and chips. And, you know, I was totally into it. But, you know, the day I relapsed, none of, none of my NA friends could, could come talk to me and help me. Cause I, was, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to stay in there. I said, hey, I just relapsed. Can I talk to you? No, I don't get your disease. I said, I said, wait a minute, this is not, this is, the disease model is a metaphor. It's not you're going to catch it sitting with coffee. No, I was like, well, okay, never mind. So, um, and the really tragic thing is, if you're a heroin user and you've been abstaining for a long time, when you go back to using heroin, you should always use less than you normally used before because you build up tolerance, right? Mm-hmm. So that's true of coming out of prison for a while or just being absent for a while, you should always use less. But NA won't allow you to tell people that. Okay, in case you relapse, this is what you should do. Because they, they're absolutists. No, re, no relapse. Okay. Um, so then people relapse, they're in danger of dying. You, you okay with that? But it's in the relapse. So um, 12 Steps is, it played a role, believe me, in, in early 20th century, it was groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. The notion that drug users or alcoholics um, were not just pitiful, doomed people that could take care of themselves it was really radical. But, um, you know, so was, um, you know, uh, women uh, driving buses. I mean, okay, we, we, we moved beyond that. So uh, what's next? What, what can we do um, to make this a more equitable society? And uh, I feel like the, the nonprofit industrial complex gets money from the state mm-hmm. to create these drug treatment programs. And all they tell me is to hate myself, mm-hmm. that you're a bad person because you're using and so you try and be a good person, and then you relapse, and they throw you out, and they you know, make you feel worse. Because my thing is, if drugs are really bad for you, and someone uses drugs, give them a hug. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, the, supposedly the reason why we're trying to keep people from using them is they're bad for you. So what, if someone does something bad, what do you do? You make them feel worse? No, you say, oh, wow, you know, you're going to be okay. We love you. You know, we respect your choices, but... Just to let you know, you know, we hope you, no matter what you do, you're going to be safe and sound. To me, that's humane. That's what the community is about. Um, um, so I've been rambling, but uh, but but that's where that's where I've been coming from for the last uh, ten years of community organizing is basically empowering pe- people to make their own decisions um, with with some with one goal that we all can agree on in the drug war. And, and and how you do that's up to you, but um, those are my basic yeah. uh, organizing principles. And um, you know we're making progress. Yeah. And the, I, I don't feel like you've been rambling at all. I've, oh, I really? really dig what you've been saying. Oh, cool, cool. So yeah, yeah I mean um, the funny thing about it was that I told you I was really involved in um, uh, black gay organizing, and then when I moved out of the city. I stopped doing that work and went to grad school and was doing something more scientific. And then I, didn't, I never went back to New York. And, you know, New Yorkers are, I, I love them to death, but they're kind of like myopic. And so if you don't live in New York, you're probably a dead or something. Yeah. <laughs> what happened to him? Yeah. And so um, uh, when people realized I was still alive, they were amazed. Like, well, so what are you doing? Oh, I'm working with drug users now. Oh, silence. Why is that? 
because they're a group like by gay men who are really marginalized, you know, um, still are marginalized. Um, you know, the, um, it's a community that I feel comfortable with, and I, I met some of the nicest people in the world who give you the stir off your back. Just like any, any the drug users are just people. Yeah. Sure, there's some people that steal, that steal from you. There's some people that give you the stir off your back. Some people will, will get you out of an OD and save your life. Um, and what I want the people who are not drug users to help us with is don't be judgmental. Mm -hmm. Do not, um, you know, uh, don't impede people getting the care that they need. Um, I had someone in my house once who, who OD'd on um, GHB. Um, it was an accident. He didn't, he, I thought he knew what he was doing. He so I called the ambulance. And the ambulance came, and they looked around, and cops came, and they said, oh, looks like you've been doing speed. And I said, look, do not, do not do this on us. We want you to help us stay alive, okay? This isn't really relevant right now. Yeah. Because they said, if you do this, next time I'm not going to call you. And then my friend may die. So those are things that we can do now. This was like uh, 10 years ago. I'm proud. It's not proud, but I'm, I don't know. I, I don't know if using the word police and proud and saying that is really where I want to go, but um, yeah, they're good cops. But um, but the police are, are are carrying Narcan now. Huh. Yeah. So if they come across somebody who's ODing, they can take the Narcan out and bring him back. I think that's that's great. Um, I'm not an opiate user myself, but um, <clears throat> uh, I've seen that happen before my eyes. People being revived, um, and. Um, but uh, Urban Survivors Union right now, like this past year, we've been focused mostly on stimulant users. Um, we're thinking about giving away bubble pipes through speed, mm -hmm. but the, the, we can't really pay for it, and it's hard to justify because it's different cultures. Like, okay, people who, um, okay, people get kicked out of their apartments in SROs a lot because they're crack smokers. Not because they can't keep it together, but they get beat up emotionally all the time, and it's a shame, right? So, you know, they end up on the street, and um, uh, we, we, we come to people and said, hey, don't share that pipe, we can give you brand new pipes. And we turn around and look, and they're, and they're, and they're sharing the brand new pipe. And like we, at first I'm like, are they crazy? But then I realized, this is how this community survives, mm -hmm. sharing. Yeah. And sometimes um, it's, it's dysfunctional, but every community has a goal, which is to Help, help you know use their collective resources to um, to make their their world better and, and collectively. Um, I see community um, where people just see this dysfunction. Um, I say that drug users are very organized because for forty years they've been able to uh, do what they want to do with the full weight and force of the justice department and police on their backs, and they still manage to do it. Yeah, some people get busted, but they're resilient and. Um, that that takes community. That's an accident. Um, so these are people that, to me, are functional, can do things because they've already been doing things. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like um, when the early feminist movement they said wages for housework, because you know a lot. Of, this is this is an economic activity that needs to be compensated. People are like what? The women's supposed to do that? No, no. Mm -mm. It's a job. They're, just, yep. they're not getting paid for it. And then we pretend it's a duty because it's just ripping people off. Yeah. So, um, anyway, um, uh, I think that we're going to get to a 
decriminalized. Great. I think in the next 20 years at the, at the longest. And, but you never know. One Supreme Court decision could yeah. wipe it all out and we could be, you know, no more laws. Well, yeah, I guess it goes hand in hand with what's happening in prisons, too. Mm hmm. So. Yeah, you know, um, um, people get drugs in prison and use, use them. It's common knowledge. Um, and we would like to see the, the um, prison system allow people to get syringes if they need it. Mm -hmm. And some jails do. Um, San Francisco jail does that. Um, not going to happen in Santa Rosa. So, they, so what happens? They use an old rig that someone smuggled in and been used by 20 different people and they're going to get hep C. Yeah. Um, because of the war on drugs. That's really terrible. Um, so it just reminds me of like the spread of HIV in prison and how people are tested when they go into prison and they're mm -hmm. not tested upon release. You said they're not? Yeah. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, and not only that, but um, there's no uh, acknowledgement that this is, this arrest is going to have a big impact on this person's ability to go to school. You can lose funding, um, housing. Um, so we just throw people back out to out the street with nothing, and they end up coming back. You know, um, there's a campaign not to build a bigger jail. Yes. Oh yeah, I went to one of those board of supervisors meetings. Yeah. 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 I went there one too, and Ooh. what a surreal trip. Yeah. I mean, you, you professional people from the Department of Public Health thing, yes, we agree that people who are mental uh, 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 disadvantages should not be in, in jail um, currently the way they are. We, we want the new jail to have special rooms and facilities for the mentally, mental, mentally challenged people. I'm like, no. <laughs> you know, because they're drug users, they have to do their treatment in prison or jail? No. I mean, you're always better off doing your treatment in the community that you were using it. Yeah. It's insane. Um, yeah, sheriff's department, they want it because it's more money. Yeah. You know, um, it's bureaucracy. My department's bigger than your department. And we're trying to shut it down and say, no, we don't want a new jail. We want, it's an, if we don't arrest people needlessly, we have plenty of space. So... Critical Resistance is a group that's kind of spearheading that. I don't know if you know anything about them, but um, and also Curb, um, um, which focuses on budget stuff. Mm -hmm. um, they're trying to get some sane budget policies out. But I, I question people: just because they're, they're gonna, like, gonna just because they're gonna stop taking us to jail, doesn't mean the money's gonna flow to us. It's not automatic. It's gonna, they're gonna suck it up to do whatever they want to do. Whether it's, um, you know, another boat race or, you know, a big Super Bowl party or, uh, you know, give t Twitter a tax break. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it can be frightening. And I think we're all, I'm thrown off, I can't speak for myself, that San Francisco has, has really bought into this dream mm -hmm. of like the Twitterati is going to save us. Oh, no. You know, um, Facebook finally gave the General Hospital a lot of money for a big wing. That's great. That's good. Um, but um, what goes on in the hospital? Yeah. You know, uh, it's gotten better. Because one of the things that we were working on with drug users, and we met regularly in the emergency room, because I said, all our members are telling us they get horrible treatment. They get yelled at for using drugs and saying that mm -hmm. you're wasting, wasting, your, wasting their time. And, they, and they go, well, well, yeah, that's true. 80% of the people come in the ER, it's drug-related. And so we said, so that's your, that's your uh, patient load. Deal with it. Mm-hmm. 
you know, who are you to, to say, oh, well, I like this disease, but this one is really a drag. It's kind of like, you know, self-inflicted. And why can't it just stop? And, and like, no, 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 no. This is your patient load. Um, I, I don't want to spend a lot, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on, like, why people use. There's a million different reasons. Yeah. Uh, from trauma to it just feels good and they like it. Sure. Um, so, um, yeah, I was curious about like the yeah, systemic, you know, what's the kind of like the roots that are in place that uh, do kind of move people to mm-hmm. take part, which, which you just mentioned. In well, you know, and let's, let's talk about the gay male community specifically for a minute. Yeah. Okay. Um, gay bars were for a long time the only place we could gather yeah. um, without uh, police raids or whatever because they were rumored to be you know, run by the mafia and, you know. again that dialectic of like you know mafia kills people they're not a great group of people but on the other hand if you're you know in, in the 50s you can take a lump of a bar and no one's going to bother you because it's, <laughs> it's pretty tough yeah. so they made money off of that okay so so the gay community began at post-world war ii meeting in a, a drug a drug uh environment alcohol is a drug and um uh, the way I see it is that when HIV hit, people got a lot of despair yeah. and losing people left and right. And then me- that's why methamphetamine became, I think, a really popular drug because it gave people a euphoria again. Um, you could dance all night, you could have sex all night, you could, you know, and you could forget about the AIDS crisis for a little bit. Is that good? Um, well, AIDS crisis ain't good. <laughs> you know, I mean, we had a president for like eight years, didn't even mention it once. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's not good either. I mean, you know, it's, you can't. Can you curse? Can you say? Oh yeah, you can say whatever you want. Shit happens. Yeah. You know, um, and um, uh, believe me, if, if HIV was a disease that hit um, like middle class, uh, older men in their forties, mm-hmm. that funding would be flowing like a river. Oh sure. You know, um, but but you know the group that's had the biggest uh, positive net. Reduction in new infections that are the drug users hmm. because of needle exchange. Huh. Mm-hmm. It is a really effective intervent- intervention. It's proven beyond a doubt to work. Mm-hmm. But Congress always cuts the funding for it. Mm-hmm. So all the needle exchanges in, you see in the country are privately funded. How? That's, it's, 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 don't get me started. Yeah. I mean, these are our tax dollars. I'm a part, I grew up in America, I'm an American. Yeah. Why can't I rely on my, you know, I mean, come on. Yeah, no, instead it goes to like the military or corporate subsidies. Oh, and, homophobia yeah. up to, you know, whatever. Oh. And you know, and you know what's funny because um, when they reinstated that, on my Facebook page, I put um, a comment on it and I put the Nazi flag. <laughs> or you get you know kind of criticizing Republicans as being kind of fascist because they yeah. they were, yeah. um, and Facebook took it down, saying that we have a policy against. Mm. I said, look, I'm not a Nazi. I'm trying to. I'm making a political point. I'm comparing um, genocide done in the past with genocide now. If you don't give people the money to protect themselves from a, uh, a, a disease that could kill them, that's genocide. Knowing that the, the, so they wouldn't relent. I said, this is stupid policy. You're not taking the context of what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I'm not promoting neo Nazism. But anyway, so, you know, um, and then, of course, I mean, I, I assume that you're, you're, you're not heterosexual, or maybe. Um, so I'm, I'm pansexual. Pansexual? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So you know that all these identities are really fluid. Yeah. 
Yeah. You yeah. know, um, I've met plenty of men who say that they're not gay, but they're doing oh, yeah. <laughs> every gay thing you know, can think of. Um, so what does that mean? What, what does gay mean? Um, so um, that's also an issue when trying to deliver uh, safe, safer sex and um, interventions, health interventions to the population. With, you don't even know what they call themselves. It can be challenging. Um, and so, gee, why do gay men hate themselves? Well, it's been not all of them, but a lot. Well, maybe because when they, when the Supreme Court says you can get married and you try to get married, they, they still won't give it to you. That doesn't make you feel like, oh, everybody loves me. I'm a great person. I, you know, it's just like, when's it going to end? Yeah. No, it's just, it's, it's coping to, to stay alive in a culture that has become mm. and has been for a long time. So, so when I see someone who who has like problematic use, maybe yeah, who's using a lot and like kind of, kind of like not getting it together or something, I give them uh, some slack. It's like, I don't know what's going on with them. I don't know what happened to them when they were uh, a kid, because victims of childhood uh, abuse, it's one of the worst things ever. Because you know what, you cannot catch the abusers too late. I mean, you know, where, were the, where were you when the kid was being abused, right? We weren't there. And um, so that's something that's really hard to cope with. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, when, I, when I became homeless, um, one day I was walking down the street, and I just suddenly I had a flashback to some, some things that happened to me when I was a kid. And I was like, wow. Only, but only when I was feeling really vulnerable in the street, I felt really, like, I, didn't, I couldn't, like... Um, take myself yes and it brought back that that memory yes and so um it's, i'm getting a little philosophical here but i mean we why do we create these environments for our citizens to feel that unsafe their minds of being abused as a kid um i mean i'm glad i remembered it you know but i guess but i mean does but does that have to do with my using probably who knows um and you know what i, I tell people you don't have to know you don't have to fix yourself. You know, just, just you know, don't die on me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you want to fix yourself, you can do that. But just, just don't let people pressure you into fixing. Yeah. I gotta be perfect. Right. You know, um, like if, uh, you know, um, I'm not someone's. Uh, I'm gonna be someone's friend if I can. I don't know your life. I don't know what you go through. Um, and I wait for people to ask me for advice when I'm working with people. I don't. I don't ever say, "Oh, you're doing too much. You should stop." Um, if someone cannot function uh, in a volunteer position, we do, you know, kind of like, you know, someone else takes it over, and they can still help out. But um, we don't fire them or anything. We just yeah. kind of like, say, "Hey, we just got to get done right now," and people understand that. So, um, but a lot of change is coming up, and then this whole other issue of, of designer drugs. Specifically, specifically created to avoid drug laws. Mm. That's another unwanted uh, manifestation of the drug war. So pretty soon we're gonna have tens and hundreds of drugs that we don't know anything about because they come yes. out. To, I mean, you know, uh, I was saying to my friends, you know, with the 3D printing and nanotechnology in the future, you probably could make a, your own drugs in a microwave kind of machine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
you know, put some sawdust in there and program it, and suddenly you had a whole bunch of heroin. In fact, there was a new technique of creating opioids from, I think, a potato or something. Huh. Yeah, it was some, some researchers came up, came up with that, and guess what the government did? Clamp down it. You can't let people yeah, know how you did it. it, and then take it, and then find a way where they can sell it. You know, I mean, and um, the whole NSA thing, you know, with the oh, spying yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Um, I say to people, I'm glad that you guys are realizing that we live in a surveillance state. Drug users have dealt with that forever, mm-hmm. you know. And and and, be, and like remember my story, I said that drugs have no the drug war has no moral authority and it promotes corruption in society. Yes. Do you remember a few years ago when the police, um, I think the Henry Hotel, Sixth Street. Um, turned the cameras off and went in and, and planted drugs in people and busted them for no reason. So they got caught, you know, and uh, and they you know went to jail. But the funny thing about it is some of those transcripts that they used in discovery to put them away, that's where they discovered these racist um, emails that were happening. Okay. Okay. So, you know, it's it's like, okay, you know what? It is a corrupting force. Yeah. You know, it's like, to me, it's like modern day slavery. Yes. In some ways. Um, uh, mass mass incarceration. Majority of people are Latino, uh, black and Latino. Yes. Um, and I say to people, you know, we take we collect data, demographic data on people we serve. Our data shows that um, while black men may be like almost fifty percent of the people we serve, this uh, white men and um, Latino men are also make up you know a, a different uh, a, a larger uh, group of people that uh, access. So it's a big myth that like oh crack is a you know ghetto drug and you know, the people are dangerous. Why are they dangerous? Because they're black men. You know, and it just goes on and on and on and on. You know, um, I, I don't want to buy myself out. <laughs> but no, there is hope. There, there is definitely hope. Because we, we're doing things, right? Yeah. We're on the radio right now. We're talking about it. Yeah. And I'm not afraid. Um, my life is an open book. And I, I, I say I'm a free speech advocate I have a right to just to say the government's wrong yeah absolutely. you're gonna arrest me because of that well go ahead I'd rather be arrested than stop saying it. don't scare me you know yeah. don't try and scare me and if, if everyone spoke up just ima- imagine what that would look like so that also encourages other people to speak up yes yes silence is you know silence was the thing that um that um suppressed the gay movement hmm. you know, people started coming out and then you know, silence also and shame was, was going to kill us through HIV. Mm. So people start to say, hey, you know, I have HIV and I'm proud. You know? Because um, I remember in a really early gay march in 74, 75, you know, um, this guy came to me from the street, a straight guy, and said, hey, look, I have nothing against homosexuals. I live in the village, I see them all the time. Why are you guys doing this? Why are you marching the street? Why, we have no problem with you. I said, because we want people to understand that we're here, we're queer, get used to it. And, and we don't want to be tolerated. We want to be in your face. Yeah. For us, so we know that like it's more than tolerance that that you know we don't care what you think about us. We you know we 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 have some uh, determination of how we want to be positioned in society. And so he said, "Oh, okay, you know, um, because you know that 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 um, stereotype of like, oh, I don't mind seeing gay people. I just don't see I don't want to see them kissing in public. I don't I don't you know I don't want to see the, the sex part. You know that's uh, like what? Like, yeah, come on. I mean." Um, and again, again, it gets complicated because then you have like objectification issues and porn wars, and mm-hmm. you know, like it's pornography. I heard you talking about the Red Boy thing. Oh yeah, yeah. What a crap, pile of garbage! 
I mean, I, Rempoy, to me, is like, uh, there's no pimps in, in Rempoy. There's no trafficking in Rempoy. Yeah. I mean, why it's does it... Something adults. You know, it's because the body is supposedly, doesn't belong to you, it belongs to the state or the church, and they just rent it to you. <laughs> you know, and you, if you don't bring it back on time or you have off-channel off use, no, yeah. we're going to tow your body. That's what it comes down to at the end of the day. It's all, it's all really connected. It's people being locked away or mistreated based on what they choose to do with their bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe that um, that's the site of so much oppression. Is that, I mean, that's, some people say that's the, one of the original uh, conditions for class uh, society is the domination of women you know, by patriarchy. And then that, that's associated with land and, mm. you know, and material goods that began the descent of women into kind of a chattel class. Um, that we still still can't, you know, I mean, it's so difficult. You know, I have, I have you know, I have straight friends from, and I, you know, oh, wait, you know, women are, are cooking and doing, so why isn't your husband doing this? Oh, because my do- his job won't allow him to do it. You know, he won't get, it. anyway, it's, it's, it's there's so much to do that I think we have to realize that unless we become revolutionaries, yeah. all of us in some ways, yes, we're going to be spinning in circles for a long time. Yeah. We have some radical breaks with the past. And also know your history. Um, I, love, I love it when heterosexuals say, oh, gay marriage breaks the tradition of... Uh, the tradition of what? I mean, do you know anything about 5th century uh, B.C. Rome? I mean, uh, Greece? That, that was not... Uh, um, <laughs> there were lots of homosexuals running around there. Read Plato's um, Symposium. Gay people are part of Western culture from the beginning. Yes, yeah. So yeah, don't give me countries. this like, oh, this is breaking the tradition. Say like, no, no. Yeah. You know. Um, so I also think that um, I'm one of these people that believe that scholarship, maybe because I was doing research too. But scholarship is important. Know your history. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, I wanted to actually ask you. You brought up before that you wrote dissertations. So I was curious about that. What you wrote your dissertation on? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I wrote my dissertation um, um, looking at a science uh, curriculum being implemented in um, elementary school. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I picked this particular classroom was because um, the teacher was African-American. And because um, uh, me being African-American, there was a certain rapport that I had with him that other researchers could not get to. Mm-hmm. That he, 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 he would like, after, I'd be sitting in the classroom and just, you know, because when I first, looking for a research site, I spent a lot of time just hanging out trying to decide. And so then he started having a side conversation with me. Like, after everyone left, they said, come on, let's, let's, let's really talk. So I thought, this is really interesting. This is really interesting because this calls for a lot more diversity in research. If subjects are only going to talk to certain people, then we have to have a diverse research uh, you know, community, which it, 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 it was not when I was there. Very diverse. Um, so I got fascinated with that. And also, but he had a lot of theories about language, because um, there was Haitian, like uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Massachusetts had a lot of Haitian immigrants. There were a lot of Haitian kids in his class. So he would say things like, there's no words for telescope in Haitian. <laughs> so how can they learn the science? I'm like, because you're going to teach them a new word. <laughs> yeah. That's your job, you know. It's not hard to do, you know. But these are the barriers that people... He, there's, there's nothing in linguistic theory that says that you can't form a 